as the gospel made its way through the preaching of the apostles and the church in nearly every city and in nearly every home, word spread about this risen Lord Jesus Christ. News of this Jewish sect called the Way arose and word traveled so fast, faster than any social media platform can deliver. And word traveled that even in this sect, Jews and Gentiles were incorporated into one congregation. There isn't a page in Luke's accounting in the book of Acts that doesn't record for us or testify to the reality that the gospel was making headway throughout the Roman Empire. And while the leaders of this empire concerned themselves with the political intrigue and backbiting of the empire, the gospel was concerned with the welfare of eternal souls. If we stand at a distance and kind of do a zoom out on what's going on in the book of Acts, what you will find is that under the leadership of our Lord Jesus Christ and under the direction of the Spirit, we have the advancement of the gospel moving at such a wild and fast rate that not even the gates of hell could do anything to stop it. One day, 3,000 souls are snatched out of the kingdom of darkness, and in another day, 2,000 souls are snatched out of the kingdom of darkness. And so it is happening in every region of the world, including today. So what does the stronghold and grip of sin in the heart of man look like? It looks like our text this morning. Because as the gospel is advancing, you would think that the appropriate response would be for people to fall down and worship the Lord. But in fact, what we'll see in our text today is that the exact opposite happens. The text in front of us shows us that the faithful witness of the gospel will always produce two responses. Either it will be idolatry and the furthering of idolatry, or there will be a sincere fidelity. And so because the Lord has always left himself a witness throughout every age, the Lord calls us to testify to all of his works. Because the Lord has left for himself a witness in every age, we, you, are called to testify to all of the works of God. And so in our verses this morning, as we go through our text, verses 8 through 18, what we'll see this morning is that as the Lord bears witness to the word of his grace, Luke does record for us these two responses. He records for us the response of idolatry, and he records for us a response of sincere fidelity. Now, before we move into our text, I want to provide for us some sort of some uh, contextual considerations. Paul and Barnabas have been set apart by the work of the Spirit in Acts chapter 13 to go to do whatever the Spirit has called them to do. And they are going through cities preaching the gospel. They go to eastern Turkey to a city called Iconium, and they preach the gospel there. And if you look up in chapter 14, you'll see that the Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of the apostles. 
But not only this, what we see in verse 5 is that a violent attempt is being made to stone and kill Paul and Barnabas for the word that they are preaching. And so what do they do? They pack their bags and they say, you know what? It's not wise for us to stay here. Let's go west or let's go east. And so they go east to the cities of Lystra and Derb. Now you've got to get a feel for what's going on here in the passage. Because here in verse 12 or verse 13, Luke gives us a detail about these cities. When you're passing by the city of Lystra and Derb, what you will see from the very beginning is a huge temple dedicated to Zeus. So if you're wondering what this city is about, it's about false worship. It's about the worship of Zeus. Every single person in this, in this city is about the worship of Zeus. And so it's placed in the front as the most prominent thing that you see when you arrive at this city. The gates are the places where people buy and they sell things. It's kind of like the Wall Street of Lystra and Derb. This is where people go to exchange things. This is where people go to settle matters in court. This is where life happens in the marketplace and in the front, front and center. Just like if you go to any city, you'll see the skyscrapers right here in Lystra and Derb. You see the temple of Zeus. And so they come here. They come here and then Paul is preaching there. Verse 7, and they were preaching the gospel there. And so, incidental to what happens next, Paul is preaching and there's a man that's listening. Now, before we get into this man who's crippled from birth, we have to know something a little bit about the writer. The writer is Luke. He's not only a historian, but he's also a physician. And Luke gives to us at least five things about this man. So he's looking at what's going on with Paul and with Barnabas, and now he's giving to us, from a physician's standpoint, what's going on with this man. In verse 8, it says, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. So first, we, we know that this is a man that we're dealing with. This is not a little boy. This is not someone who's a teenager. This is a man. So that means that he's grown up. Some, at least 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. The second thing is that he is without strength in his feet. The third thing is that he's sitting. And then he gives us some time or a timeline of how long this has been happening. He's been a cripple from his mother's womb and he never walked. He didn't even shuffle. And if you know what it's like and what life is like for those people back in those days, they couldn't do anything for themselves. And so from right from the very beginning of our text, what we see is, is Luke pointing us to something, to a spiritual reality. that This man could not make his way in any way, shape, or form to helping himself. And so this is important because for our contextual consideration, the miracle comes next. The first miracle is that the man is listening to Paul speaking. This is an active engagement with what Paul is saying. He's not kind of letting his, his thoughts go up into the air and thinking about tomorrow's food or what happened yesterday or how he was at the same place or how he's been crippled for so long. He's thinking about what Paul is saying. 
And we know this because Luke records for us that Paul was observing him and not just kind of looking at him and glancing at him. Paul was looking at him intently, intensely. And he saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, we don't know what gave that away. We don't know what what that looked like to Paul. But we do know that Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God in Romans, right? But something that this man was doing gave Paul the indication that he had faith, not in in the ability to be healed, but he had faith in the God who does the healing. It wasn't faith in faith. It was faith in the Lord who heals. And it's probably doubtful that he had faith at this point, or he came, showed up, was carried to this place, thinking that he was, today I'm going to get healed. He probably just sat there, listened to Paul's preaching, as Paul stayed there preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. And he said, I believe. So the first miracle is the work of salvation in the heart of man. And right from the very beginning, what we are told, not explicitly, but implicitly, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. In fact, that's the entire message of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This man could not do anything to heal himself, but he listened. And Paul preached. In verse 10, it says, Paul said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. Now, the miracle is impressive. Not only is the miracle of regeneration impressive enough, the Lord supplements that miracle with another miracle. And that miracle is that this man leaped, that's the first word that Luke introduces us to, and walked. It doesn't go the other way around. He doesn't get up and walk, and this is not some sort of progressive kind of miracle. This is him leaping and walking. So that means in that moment, there has to be a miracle of the ability of the tendons and the ligaments and the feet all to mature in a moment's time. The same thing happened with the wedding at Cana, so that the man who drank the wine that Jesus had made said, well, you saved the best wine for now. And in substance, the wine had become so mature that it was impressive even to the host of the party. And so here, the miracle is a mature miracle. It's an immediate miracle. And now everybody goes crazy. One of the things that we are supposed to see right from the very beginning is not only that salvation belongs to the Lord, but the Lord always bears witness to what he does. In every age, the man did not need the miracle in order to believe. The man believed the Lord and the miracle was evidence of the preaching of the gospel. And this is important, especially for many of our circles today, many of our Pentecostal and Charismatic circles, who are always claiming miracles, 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 but are forgetting the sufficiency of God's word. And what we see is people coming to faith in Christ, being delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of his Son. And that miracle is more impressive than anyone leaping and walking and praising God. Now, Luke is also establishing and vindicating 
the apostolic authority for Paul because we see another thing like this in chapter 3 where Peter and John are going to the temple to pray and they see a lame man. And so if you were uh, listening to the donut man growing up, you'll see that you'll remember the rhyme. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held out his palms and this is what Peter would say. Silver and gold I have none, but as what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ Get up and walk. And you see Peter and now Paul, whose apostolic authority is being challenged everywhere he goes. We see Paul being vindicated in his apostolic authority. So, I begin this way because I want to provide a brief context of what happens when it comes to the gospel going out and people's response. Tonight, as we listen to the preaching of the word, there's always going to be two responses. Either many of us will go out the same way that we left, and I pray that that's not the case, or our communion would deepen and sweeten with the Lord. And that is my aim for our message today, that our communion with the Lord would deepen and sweeten. So let's look together at the response of these men In verse 11, now when, they had, when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So immediately, you see that Paul and Barnabas are preaching about the incarnation and the heart of sinful man wants to take that and push, put forward their own version of an incarnation. They believe in Zeus. They're deeply religious. They're religious, not spiritual people. They do, or they're spiritual, not religious, or vice versa. But these people are all about the worship of Zeus. And when they hear the preaching of God's word, when they see the miracle happening, instead of falling down and worshiping the Lord, they substitute the incarnation that Paul and Barnabas preaches for a false incarnation. And that's something that we all do. In fact, Paul reminds us of this in Romans chapter 1, where he says that we exchange the glory of the Lord for things that are not pleasing to the Lord. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And in fact, it's the lie. And so the response of idolatry is near immediate as the people lift up their voices and they cry out and they say, Zeus and Hermes have come down to us instead of saying the living God has borne witness to the word of his grace. And so Paul and Paul runs out and Barnabas and they run out and they're they're confused, they're bewildered. Whenever we're preaching the gospel, whenever we're sharing the gospel, there will always be a tendency for the people that we are sharing the gospel with to raise up the defenses of our own hearts, of their own hearts, and put forward some sort of shields and say, you know what, I'm not doing that. I don't want to deal with that. And they'll find a way to weasel their way out of what the scripture is calling them to. And the first, the, the, the first question of our shorter catechism says that we were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what man wants to do when they hear the preaching of the word is they want to say, well, I can do other things. 
And to a certain extent, this is an extreme example of what the heart of man does. They turn around and they say, you know what? You did such a fabulous job in the preaching of the word. I'm going to worship you. Let's go get the garlands, get the oxen, get the fatted calves. Let's go and sacrifice because you are a god. And we see this natural inclination to hero worship. This is why when we look at the entirety of the scripture, the scripture is not bashful when it comes to how fallen we are and how glorious the Lord is. It only puts one person up on a pedestal, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I remember one time I was sitting behind a really famous preacher. I went to a conference, and I was thinking to myself, Man, I'm sitting behind a really famous preacher. And then the person that was, they were having a prayer meeting and they said, you know what, why don't we all just turn into circles and let's just pray for a few minutes. And this famous preacher in front of me turns around and here I am, my heart is racing. I'm like, I'm praying with this guy. And then I remembered Jeremiah 9.23, where the Lord says, let him who boasts, boast in that he knows. Not the preacher. But me. For these men at the gates, not on Tuesdays, these men at these gates. For these men at these gates, they exchange the glory of God for a lie. And so, with this in mind, one of the things, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as we're going through this text is do we resign ourselves to the sovereignty of God when we share the gospel? Almost in a fatalistic kind of way, where we say, well, I did my job. I shared the gospel. I told him about Jesus. I shared the gospel with her. And let God do what he does. I'm not doing anything about it. And you fold your arms and you walk to the side. Is that our attitude? It seems to me that the the attitude that the apostles had was very, very different. And so we look not only at the response of idolatry, but now we're going to look at the response of fidelity, the fidelity of Paul and Barnabas. What do they do? Luke records for us in verse 14, but when the apostles, he just doesn't say disciples, these are apostolic delegates from the Lord Jesus Christ going and heralding the gospel. When these apostolic delegates heard what happened They tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? The act of tearing a robe is familiar to those who are Jewish because it shows the deepest signs of grief, of horror. And for these men, it was bewilderment. Why are you doing these things? They didn't fold their arms and say, you know what? We preached the gospel to them. I did a miracle. They should have believed, but they didn't believe. Oh, well. Instead, they run out to the public square, and they say, what are you doing? They go out, and then Paul gives his testimony. He bears witness to the works of God. Look what he says. Look at what he says. First, he says, men, why are you doing these things? So he addresses them as just men. That's all they are. That's all they are, and that's all they will be. They are men. 
And then he says, we also are men. So he and, Paul, he and Barnabas are men with the same nature as you. This is the same word that's used when James is talking about prayer. He says, Elijah was a man with the same nature as us. And this is why, if you remember several weeks back in our prayer meetings, we said, don't put anyone on a pedestal. Just because someone like John Knox prays these wonderful prayers and someone asks you to pray, don't compare yourself to them. Because the Lord hears the voices of every one of his people. Even the weakest of prayers make it into the ears of the Lord. And so he says, why are you doing these things? We are men with the same nature as you. We're not gods. We're not divine. We're just men. We are capable of falling just like you are. We are capable of idolatry just like you are. But we are just men, just like you. And this is important because we see the humility of Paul. He doesn't say, well, <laughs> I did a great job. Thank you guys for coming. I'll be here next time. No, he says, stop. There is an expectation that these apostles had that when they preached the word, that people would come to faith in Christ. The question is for us, when we share the gospel, do we have that same expectation? And it, it, it actually should be a convicting thing for us to hear. That when, I, when I share the gospel with someone, do I really expect for them to fall on their face and say, you know what? You know what, David? I, 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 I believe in the Lord. In fact, when those events happen, it's more shocking to us than it is to the people that are coming to faith in Christ. But for Paul and Barnabas, this was their expectation. To get into the, to the head a little more of Paul, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. Because this is what's probably running through the heads of these apostles, especially with Paul. Isaiah 35 is probably running around in Paul's head as he's going from city to city preaching and proclaiming Christ. You'll see in your Bibles... Some of your Bibles will say as a heading, the future glory of Zion. And this is the Lord talking to his people, saying what his kingdom will be like. And in verse 3, he says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf Death shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer. And what do we see with this man? He leaped up. He didn't shuffle his way up and say, okay, I'm, I'm okay now. I think I'll just practice my leaps and somersaults. He leaps up and then he walks. And all of the people see this. And for Paul and Barnabas, as they're preaching and proclaiming the gospel, this is running through their head. That this is the kingdom of God that has broken into history. It's here with the power of the Spirit. And here is God that we should serve. And so... This is what causes the bewilderment with Paul. Why are you doing these things? 
He goes on to talk about the witness that the Lord gives. And in fact, before he gives, he gives a witness to what the, who the Lord is, he says at least five things about their religion and who they are and who God is. First, he calls their religion useless. This is not a seeker-sensitive plea. <laughs> not at all. Then you wonder why Paul was getting stoned from city to city. But he calls their religion useless. In today's context, we would kind of shy away from that, and we would say, ah, you can believe what you want to believe, but I believe in the living God. But if Paul was here today, he would say, Islam, useless. Jehovah's Witness, useless. Mormonism, useless. Nominal Christianity, useless. And he would not be afraid to call out all of the religions of the world as not only vain and useless, but demonic as well. Because everything that deters us from the truth of who God is, is in itself demonic and useless. This is why we can't tolerate religions like Islam or Jehovah's Witness. We share the gospel and we plead with our neighbors and our friends and family, turn away from these useless things. These things don't give you life. So he calls their religion useless, and that is a pretty bold move on his part. He tells them that Zeus is not the living God, but God is the living God. He tells them that this same God who permitted the nations to walk in their own ways permitted them, even at Lystra, to walk in their own ways for a time. And this highlights the Lord's political sovereignty. We're used to thinking about sovereignty in a sort of providential way, like he works all things for our good, and that's good, that's right. But when it talks about the Lord being the sovereign Lord, that means he rules and he reigns. Think Psalm 2. The Lord reigns. He tells them that this God that he serves, is the creator of all things, not Zeus. And so he goes on and he tells them that this God is proactive in leaving himself a witness. God is good. This God is good. He says in verse 17, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good. This is the goodness of God. This is who he is by disposition. This is his character. All the things that he does are not necessarily he's just doing good things. He is good in himself and all of the things that he does are the overflow of his character. So the mercy of God is the goodness of God towards sinners. The grace of God is his superabundant love and compassion towards sinners out of the goodness of his character. And so this is the God that Paul bears witness to. This is not Zeus who is capricious, who is temperamental, who does this and who does that. This is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. Even in 2022. Even tomorrow, should tomorrow come. And this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Paul, Peter, and all of us here at Woodruff Road. 
He tells us at least ten things now going forward about who this Lord has given. He tells us at least, not ten, but seven things in these ten verses about the witnesses that the Lord gives. Witness number one, he sends his apostles. There's a physical witness. Witness number two, they preach the resurrection. That's a verbal witness. Witness number three, the Lord heals through Paul a crippled man. This is a miraculous witness. Number four, he brings correction. The Lord brings correction through Paul to their idolatrous response. So there's a corrective witness. Number five, the fifth witness. He creates the world and everything in it so that even creation becomes a witness. Number six, he creates the, or he allows kingdoms to rise and to fall, so now you have a politically sovereign witness. And the final witness, he gives fruitful seasons and times of gladness. This is why we read Psalm 104, that he makes wine to gladden the heart of man and bread to strengthen him. He gives fruitful seasons and times of gladness. So now we see the providential care of God's witness. There's at least a sevenfold witness that the Lord gives in these ten verses. But the one witness that the entirety of all scripture bears witness to one man. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, this is what the Apostle John says. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And you fast forward to chapter 3, verse 14. These things say, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Friends, this morning, or this evening, we're not in the morning, it's morning somewhere, but this evening... As we are listening to the preaching of the word, as we open up our Bibles, we have a faithful and true witness. Even if heaven and earth passes away, even if there are no miraculous signs at all, we have a faithful and true witness. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we can't leave every man to himself. We have to declare to all the world, everywhere we go, whether it's Publix or Ingalls or anywhere, whether it's our work or even in our own families, we have to declare the faithful and true witness because he's always been faithful to us and he's always borne witness to the works of his hands and everything that we've seen. And you know, you know that he's been faithful to you. He's giving you the Spirit who bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas plead with the people at Lystra. Do you plead with the people in your own family? Do you plead with the people that you work with? That you see eyeball to eyeball? You don't know if they'll be here tomorrow. Do you plead with them? Turn away from these vain and useless things. Turn to serve the living God. What is your witness like? And these are really heart-searching questions as we go through these texts. 
And so because the Lord has always left for himself a witness, you and I are called to bear witness to the one who's faithful and true every single day of your life, even when you don't feel like it, even when there's a fight for joy because you're in so much pain. Even when your family turns their back on you. What did the Psalms say? My mother and, though my mother and father forsake me, nevertheless, the Lord will not. And so what does your witness look like? Does it look like Paul and Barnabas running out to the public squares of your lives and saying, please turn away? Or do you just fold your hands and say, well, leave it in God's hands. Let these words from Luke teach us, teach you, instruct your hearts that we ought to bear witness. The Lord gave everything, and he is the faithful and witness, faithful and true witness. If you ever ask the question, is the Lord really all in? Look at the cross. He is, he was, and he will always be all in not only for his people, but he will do it even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, now I pray that you would drive these words into our hearts. Let your glory be seen in the testimony of our lives as we bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. For Christ's sake. Amen.